Well, good morning, people of God. It really is such an incredible privilege to stand in front of God's people and just reading this week how the Lord is present with his people in a, a unique way when they gather for worship, when we gather to worship him, the, the spirit here present with us, the Lord present where two or more are gathered in his name as we gather as God's people. And it's just such a privilege to stand in front of you and bring you God's word. And I pray that this morning as we come to this time of instruction, which is part of our worship service, that we will sit under the word. This is an idea that you've heard me say before, but it really is the only posture. Um, I have read and seen many who stand over the word, uh, and that is a, a place of ruin. That is a, a road to disaster. We always, even in our analyzing and dissecting and seeking to understand, the posture of our hearts is that we always sit under God's word. And as we do that together this morning, as we collectively sit under God's word, we come to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 9, 6b to 9, that'll be our sermon text for this morning. So if you will go there with me, Exodus 34, 6b to 9. Last week, we started with one big request from Moses to God, to Yahweh. And this is what he asked. Show me your glory. Please show me your glory. That was the title for the sermon last Sunday. And today we have part two. So part one last week, part two this week. Show me your glory. And as we reflect just on that question, we realize that this really is the heartbeat of the believer's life. This is the heartbeat of the Christian life. We want to see God's glory. We want to see God's glory as it is revealed in creation. We want to see God's glory as he is glorified in the world through the works of his people. We want to see God in his glory. And this desire which we Uh, We we came to have this desire when we were converted, this desire that has been planted in us, that animates everything about us now that we are Christians, drives us to two things in particular, this innate desire to see God's glory. And by the way, this is not a desire present in an unbeliever. An unbeliever has no desire to see God's glory. Of, of course, unbelievers have a desire to have God's benefits, but God's benefits are marvelous, and we see many of them in common grace. Unbelievers, of course, long for the benefits of a good and gracious creator, but not him, not his glory. It is the mark of a Christian to desire to see God's Glory, And it drives us to two things. First, it drives us to our Bibles. And second, it drives us to our hope. Why do I say it drives us to our Bibles? Well, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we read this, that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Where do we behold the glory of the Lord? In the word of God. In God's word, we behold God's glory. And so it is this desire to see God's glory, a desire that Moses had and that we now have. It is in this desire. It is out of this desire to see God's glory that we are driven to the pages of the Bible. But it also drives us to our future hope. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In other words, we will see him in his glory. We will see his face. And so as Christians, this desire to see God's glory drives us to the pages of the Bible, but it also drives us in hope and anticipation. We are awaiting people. 
We're not people with our heads down on the, on the ground on what's in front of us merely, but we are people who are always looking forward and looking up. And that is the hope that we now have. As Peter says in 1 Peter, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and it is this hope that forms the basis for what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15. As he lays out the resurrection of Jesus and then built on that is the hope that we have in our own future resurrection. So my desire for us, my prayer for us is that for all of us, for my own heart, for my family, for us as a church, that this desire to see God's glory would indeed drive us to the Bible and make us people of great hope. The scene here in Exodus is one of intercession. Moses is interceding to God on behalf of Israel after the golden calf incident. That would be a summary of the scene, of the context. It's a context of intercessory speaking. We would say intercessory prayer, but uh, Moses is talking with God as he is seeing his glory in various ways. And so he is speaking to God as an intercessor. And he makes two interrelated appeals to the Lord. He says, give us your presence and show me your glory. To the first God says that he will go with Moses and the people. Originally, God had said, I'm not going with you. I'm sending an angel, a created being. The glory cloud that had been there that led them by day and by night. The, the idea is that that will no longer be present. There will be an angel that will go and do the work on behalf of God's people in Canaan. But that God's presence would be gone from them. And it was an invitation to Moses as the covenant mediator to come to God on behalf of the people to say, no, 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 Lord, you must go with us. We can't take a single step without you. And God says to Moses, okay, I will go with you. I will go with the people. And last week we looked at God's answer to the second appeal. To the second appeal, as Moses asks to see God's glory. God tells Moses that he will pass by him, but that he will hide him in the cleft of a rock and cover him until he has passed by. And the reason for this is stated in chapter 34, verse 20. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. In other words, God is telling Moses, if you see my face, you'll die. And therefore, I'm not going to allow you to see my face. I'm going to cover you. I'm going to walk past you. Whatever that meant, whatever that looked like, so much mystery there. But as God passes by in his glorious presence, he will cover and then remove so that Moses will see God's back. Or as the text literally reads, God's backs or the after effects of his glorious passing. God will allow Moses to see something, but it will be God's back. However, last week, we saw that God's response to Moses is centered not so much on what Moses will see, but on what he will hear. And my guess is that as you've read this passage in the past, As you've come to it, you probably have emphasized the former over the latter. You probably have thought of this passage in terms of what Moses saw. And that's been at the front. And that's because he asks, show me your glory. But what the text does is it moves us away from an emphasis on seeing to an emphasis on hearing. It is centered on what Moses will hear. Verse 19 And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, the focus of this scene is more on the understanding of what Moses will hear than on the wonder of what he will 
see. And of course, we are in a state of awe and wonder at what Moses saw. And Moses was certainly in a state of awe and wonder at what he saw. But the text is moving us toward Moses' understanding of the truth that he will hear. He will hear an explanation of the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh, from Yahweh himself. God will pass by declaring God's name. And through that, Moses will gain deeper understanding of God's character. And the net result for Moses will be reassurance. Reassurance for Moses as the covenant mediator, as he stands between the golden calf and the renewal of the covenant. So what we have here between this golden calf tragedy, this moment of grave sin in the life of Israel, and the renewal of the covenant, what we have is this great understanding of the gracious character of God as God declares it and as Moses understands it. So last week we ended with Moses standing before the Lord on the mountain holding two fresh tablets. He has come up, he's gone down the mountain, he's come up the mountain, well he's been at the bottom of the mountain in the tent of meeting. He gathers these two tablets, carves them out, cuts them out, and he carries fresh tablets, remember because the first two were broken, he carries the tablets up before the Lord. And there he is standing with the the symbol of the covenant in his hands as God comes down and passes before him. Today we look at what God says and how Moses reacts. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. What God says and how Moses reacts. What I want to do is bring us back to the beginning of this whole passage so that you can put what we look at today in context. We only have a few verses to look at today. So I'm going to read from chapter 33, verse 18, all the way to 34, verse 9, but today we'll cover verses 6 to 9 of chapter 34. So here it is. This is the word of the Lord. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, or the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now let me just stop here as I did last week and say God is spirit. So we're not meant to see God as this massive uh, human who just has giant hand and giant head and so forth. Uh, these are anthropomorphic ways. These are human ways of describing what God is doing, how this is happening. Chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning. And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. And here's our passage for today. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to 
<coughs> anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And then I, I, I like to just read verse 10, so you know where we're going. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, dot, dot, dot. You go ahead and be seated. So God says to Moses, yes, yes, and yes. Um, I don't know if you write in your Bible, but if, if you have any passage in your Bible underlined or highlighted, it's got to be this one, right? So this is, this is at the top. This is at the top of all Bible passages. So this one is fundamental and central And however else you want to say that. So I would encourage you, please, underline, memorize, meditate upon this. All reality flows out of this. All gospel truth flows out of this. All purpose and meaning of life flows out of this. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for... Your goodness to us, Lord, as you show us in your word. And God, we've seen your goodness in our lives, in your providence, as you've taken care of us and provided in so many ways, Lord. And not just in uh, the physical ways as we think about health and, and our finances and other things, Lord, but how much you have provided for us in terms of our spiritual life, in terms of our growth and our relationships and all the things, God, that have brought us to this point in our lives. There is a a massive train of goodness from the Lord that goes before us, that, that is in the wake, and that stands out ahead of us, Lord. We're so thankful, and we're nowhere nearly as thankful as we ought to be. So, Lord, we pray for your forgiveness for our ingratitude, which is expressed in our our grumbling, our boredom, our idolatry, and and all the things that that ensnare us in the Christian life. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness that we do not honor you and give you thanks as we should. Lord, we pray that we would be helped by your spirit this morning to, to truly worship you as we see in this passage for who you are. And God, that we would be grateful people, grateful most of all for what you did for us at the cross and what you have given us in your spirit and what you lay out for us in our future, a future of eternity with you, God, be with you in your eternal, infinite presence. Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask that it would edify us this morning, that it would convict us of sin, sanctify us, Lord, it would draw us to you in great hope and great joy. We pray for your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. So we can divide these verses into two parts. And these are our two sermon points for this morning. So if you're writing those down, at least get these two things. So we have the holy name in verses 6b to 7. And then we have the humble reaction in verses 8 to 9. The holy name and the humble reaction. So let's look first at the name that is revealed to us here. The holy name of Yahweh, the holy name of the Lord. For that, look at verses 6 to 7 with me. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, For thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. 
When we think about God's name, it takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Exodus story. We have to scroll back. We're in chapter, chapters 33 and 34. We've got to go all the way back to chapter 3. And there in chapter 3, as shepherd Moses has been, he's been shepherding for 40 years, is the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, and he's just got a new life for himself. He's just with the sheep and simple life. Then all of a sudden, God calls him to a very non-simple life, calls him to go and to do an amazing work that God will empower him to do, that God will work through him in. And so, so God calls him to go and to, and to bring deliverance for his people who are enslaved in Egypt. And there, at the burning bush, Moses asks God about his name. He says, when I go to the people, uh, who am I going to say sent me? Who's the one that, that I'm going to present to the people? They've been in slavery for 400 years under the uh, oppressive Egyptians. One oppressive Egyptian pharaoh after another. And Moses is going to go and give this great message of deliverance from a God whom many of them will be perhaps ignorant of. And they're going to need to know what is the name of this God who has appeared to Moses and who is going to bring deliverance, salvation for the people. And God's answer comes in two parts. It is twofold. First, God declares himself to be the I am. And the name Yahweh denotes he is. And scholars argue about this sort of thing. What precisely is behind the letters that comprise, the Hebrew letters that comprise the name Yahweh. But it seems to denote in its relation to the verb to be, it seems to denote he is. God says I am and his people call on the name of the Lord he is is, seems to be what's going on as we think about the meaning of God's name. He is I am. He is the self-existing one. He simply is. And he is present with his people. Second, he is the covenant-making God of history. So God reveals himself as the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob. And this is really neat, I think, when we think about God's name, that he goes up beyond the clouds and then he goes down to the nitty gritty. So you get this first statement about who God is and he's the I am, which makes the mind explode or at the very least should make the mind explode. The philosophical depth and the awesomeness and amazement of that name, I am am, unprecedented in the ancient world with all their petty gods. And the God of the Hebrews says, I am. But then we go to the sandals and to the very real everyday walk and life of these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not just the transcendent God, he's the imminent God. He's, he's with his people he appeared to Abraham. He wrestled with Jacob. The I am God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And listen to how it is described in Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. An incredible revelation to the people. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let me just say this. He's still the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's still the God of the Hebrews. And that's what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 9 through 11. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and will forever be known as that. So that brings us to the question, hasn't God already pro proclaimed his name to Moses? I mean, God is giving all of this emphasis on his name to Moses. Moses wants to see his glory. And God says, I'm going to give you my name. And you, you could see where Moses might say, well, you've already done that part, God. 
You've already done that. I, I've heard it, the two part, you, you're I am, and you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh, I am, God of the patriarchs. Hasn't Moses already received a full revelation of God's name? Well, the answer is no. He hasn't. God's name is another way of saying God's character, his nature. His name encapsulates his nature. So rather than just giving God a label, here the Lord wants to unpack that label and show Moses that it's more than just a name. It has to do with his character. Deep. Moses has come to know much about God's nature in these years. But here God declares it in the clearest terms. Remember, and this is very important, God is moving the story from the golden calf to the renewal of the covenant. And what he puts in the gap is the glory of his gracious name. Standing between the golden calf and new tablets. Standing between the golden calf and an erected tabernacle. Standing between the golden calf and a people who are given a reiteration of God's promises is the glory of God's gracious name. It's the only way you get from point A to point B. The natural path from point A to point B is to get destroyed after point A and never make it to point B. But because of God's glorious grace, point B becomes possible. And point B happens. The first thing we notice in this proclamation is that Yahweh is repeated. So let's now look at what the Lord says. And we see first, the Lord, the Lord. Yahweh is repeated. And what this does functionally is it brings emphasis to the name. When you repeat something, it emphasizes it. And so it brings emphasis. And in doing that, it distinguishes him from any other so-called God. This God, this specific God, Yahweh. He is Yahweh, Yahweh, the God who is to be understood in these specific terms. He is holy. He is unique. In explaining who he is, He is also highlighting what all other gods are not. God is, is showing himself to be towering over all other so called gods. In this name, you see his glory shining, and you see all the other gods of the ancient world being crushed. They are inevitably deficient. Deficient how? Deficient in terms of mercy and justice. Only in the God of Israel do we find mercy and justice held perfectly together. This is part of his glory. This is how we understand God's glory. This perfect relationship between mercy and justice held together in a way that you could never find in any pagan deity. You could never find in any other God. So God upholds both of these as he declares his name, his mercy, and his justice. So let's look at these two sides or these two angles. And if you explore any other religion of the world, ancient or modern, or even those few that have gone from ancient to modern, that have lasted the, uh, past the test of time among the various peoples, Hinduism, Islam, and Buddhism, any religion in the world, whatever it might be, any pagan religion of the past, any religion of the modern world, you will find deficiency in mercy or justice, and ultimately in mercy and justice, because the two of them can never be understood apart from the other. Only in Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, do you find this perfect blending and combination of merciful justice. So first, we get 
mercy characteristics. And here we have a piling up of words as we look at these mercy characteristics. And really, I mean, you could spend so much time on these. So let's look at them in order. First, he is merciful or compassionate is probably a better way to translate that. He is compassionate and gracious. He sees neediness. He is attentive to neediness. And he grants undeserved favor. We see his compassion and his mercy as he looks upon his people in slavery. He looks upon them and he sees their suffering. We saw this as we think about uh, illustrations of this in the life of Leah. Rachel and Leah. Rachel is the loved wife of Jacob. She's more beautiful than Leah. And Leah was just kind of thrown around by her father. Uh, uh, Laban tricked Jacob into marrying Leah. So imagine the the feeling of of disappointment that Jacob felt when he realized it was Leah. And the even greater disappointment in Leah at his disappointment in her. And so what does the Lord do? In his compassion, he opens her womb and he closes Rachel's. We see God's compassion all throughout Scripture and his grace, his favor to the undeserving. This idea of mercy is related to the noun for womb. And it likely carries the connotation of motherly tenderness and affection. It, it, it's related to the noun for womb. And so the, the, the notion of a mother's love for her child. These two words have already been mentioned and they function like headings for the entire set. We see that in chapter 33, verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So these two words function as the headers for this whole pack of words, this whole set of things that is being presented In line with his compassion and grace is his slowness to anger. Notice that the Lord says that. He is slow to anger. His patience, his forbearance. In Hebrew, this is literally long of nose, which is a, a funny idea to us, but you, got, you kind of have to put your mind uh, in the, the Hebrew mindset. It, it literally is long of nose. God is long of nose. There is a long delay before the flaring of his nostrils. You think of an animal sort of bowing up and the, the nostrils flaring and even human beings, our nostrils flare. We know that. There is a long way between the offense and the flaring of God's nostrils, as it were. Once again, God does not have nostrils, but he is slow to anger. The God-man has nostrils, the incarnate Christ. God graciously bears with the sin of his people. That's the idea. Then we are given these two major biblical words, steadfast love and faithfulness. These are massive words in the Old Testament, massive words. And and as I talked about uh, over Christmas, that these two words and, and all the package here that we get are encapsulated in Jesus being full of grace and truth. That in Christ, all that we're reading here is overflowing But these ideas of steadfast love and faithfulness, God is loyal to his covenant and he is trustworthy in all his promises. And the text here says that he abounds and he keeps two wonderful verbs to hear about the Lord. He abounds and he keeps. He is overflowing in loyal love and faithfulness and he keeps this loyal love for thousands. It is a picture of endless commitment to the covenant. Uh, You know, we can think about something that abounds, uh, but then fizzles, right? It abounds, and then it's gone. Maybe you felt that way on Valentine's Day if you are a lady here. Maybe you feel that on February the 14th, that evening, there is abounding. And then the 15th, it starts to fizzle again. 
And in, in areas of life, we see this in many areas of life, abounding and fizzling out. That's what happens on the human plane. But that's not what happens for God. He is abounding eternally. He is abounding continually, endless commitment to the covenant. It is illustrated by what we heard earlier in Nehemiah 9. And I hope that when those scriptures are read, that you listen, that you follow the words. Because if you listened to Nehemiah 9, you would find this, sin, mercy, sin, mercy, sin, mercy, culminating in verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Praise God for the nevertheless. And this is precisely what Paul argues in Romans 9 through 11, is that Israel has rejected Christ. Nevertheless, all Israel will be saved. As he gets to the end, and we talked about what that means But we see this idea of God's perfect mercy and grace. And in fact, at the end of Romans 11, he says that the the end effect, the net result will be that the Gentiles and the Jews will eternally praise God for his mercy. Because the Gentiles were utterly lost and brought in. And the Jews rejected Christ but were brought back. And God will be forever praised for his mercy Nevertheless, this is a picture of what we have here, and it spans all of the history of the Jews and the history of each of our lives. And out of this deep well of compassionate grace and faithful love comes God's forgiveness. And we see that in verse 7, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, when you see multiple words, especially in Hebrew, when you see multiple words used, sometimes you're not really being invited to explore the meaning specifically of each word. Sometimes you're meant to see something comprehensive being placed in view. There's there's parallelism and there's a pulling together of vocabulary words in order to paint a holistic picture. And the picture here is all sin, all sin. We have three words. And yes, one comes with the notion of guilt incurred. And the second comes with the notion of transgressing a boundary, disobeying God, rebelling against his law. And the third is a general word for sin, denoting simply the fault in view. But they are all used here to pile up the vocabulary in an effort to say, That God forgives all kinds of sin. Guilt, disobedience, fault. God is merciful and gracious in his forgiveness. Let me just say this to you this morning. Your sin is not beyond God's grace. But whatever it is. You're here this morning. You're not a believer. And maybe you're an incredibly immoral person. Even as you see yourself. Uh, you, you would say, yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm immoral. You know, there are people who are unbelievers who, who really think that they are good people. And then there are people who are unbelievers who really know they're not. Wherever you are in your life, whatever you have done, whatever sins have defined you, whatever flavor of darkness has overcome you, has been spewing out of you, This is a God of mercy and grace to those who turn to him and repent. To those who turn from sin and turn to him, there is grace, there is mercy. There is no sin beyond the bounds of God's grace. Matthew 12, 31, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. In other words, to reject the very means by which grace is given is to lose grace altogether. And that is in the context of the Pharisees rejecting Christ and the clear demonstration of God's work by the Spirit in Christ. But the point I want you to see is that wherever you are in your life, 
For those who call upon the Lord, for those who return to the Lord, there is grace regardless of the sin. God saves murderers and rapists. God saves addicts. God saves people who have harmed many people, who have done many selfish things. God saves sinners of all sorts, all propensities, and all inclinations. We come to the one who shows us grace and mercy. This avalanche of mercy then moves to justice. God is holy and just, and he punishes sin. As one commentator puts it, he does not grant blanket amnesty. So God also declares this aspect of his character to Moses in verse 7, that he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And we've already seen this language in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 5 visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So what is this saying? Well, God renders punishment on sin. And the effects of sin and the patterns of sin transcend generations. And we saw this earlier in Nehemiah, in the text that we read from Nehemiah chapter 9. We saw God's mercy and his punishment. We, we didn't just read that, that his people sinned and God said, oh, I forgive you. And they sinned and God, oh, I forgive you. And they sinned and, oh, I forgive you. We saw the way that God punished them, the way that God sent them into exile. God put a hook in the mouth of the Babylonians and dragged them there to Jerusalem to carry the people off. God is a God of mercy, but he is also a God of punishment, a God of mercy, and a God of justice. One commentator, John McKay, explains it this way. The phrase, third and fourth generation, may be an idiom to express continuation. The legacy, I want you to hone in on that word, the legacy of sin is not quickly wiped out, but persists Through following generations. So let me say this to all of us as fathers. We have a a family worship time, a family worship workshop coming up soon in February. And I I just want to challenge all fathers to be there. All fathers and grandfathers. And of course, mothers as well. This is a whole church thing. It's a whole church event. But I want to challenge fathers to be there. And I want to ask you this question. What kind of legacy are you storing up for your children? In what ways is your sin paving the path, the stones, the cobblestones of your children's lives, the cobblestones upon which their feet will tread? Fathers, what legacy are you storing up For your children today. You think your time clicking around on the internet. Looking at things you ought not to look at. Is just affecting you. No. It's seeping into all of your family. And it's paving the way. For future generations. And it's not just that sin. It's all kinds of sins. Our selfishness. Our pride. Our pursuit of riches. Our disdain for others, our selfishness with regard to the church, our mistreatment of our wives. And it goes the other way too for wives and mothers. There's a legacy that we are holding out for our children and our grandchildren. It matters how we spend every single day, every hour of every day counts. So aside from these things, I just want to draw out a few implications for us as we take in this name of God, the holy name of God. There's so much that could be said here, but I just want to draw out a few implications for us. First, it would be all punishment without the cross. It would be all punishment without the cross. The only reason that mercy is dispensed, that grace is applied to anyone, is because of the cross. And we know that this was the case then and now 
Because of what Paul says in Romans 3, verses 24 to 25, he says to his readers, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then listen to this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What does that mean? That means that from the beginning of time, before he made the world, he put Christ at the center of history. He put the cross at the center of history. And then he exercised relationship with all sinners in light of that. His relationship with Adam and Eve, his relationship with Abel, his relationship with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, all the rest, every single saint of God, every single person who knew God, old covenant and new covenant, all with reference to this cross at the center of history. So God, he bore with the sins of Moses and the people looking forward to the death of the lion of the tribe of Judah. The seed who would crush the serpent. The offspring of Abraham who would possess the gate of his enemies. He looked forward to Christ crucified. And through that one event, that one act of justice and mercy, perfectly displayed. There is no cross in any other religion of the world. There's no perfect coming together of divine mercy and divine justice. There's a wimpy God or a cold, hard, harsh, non-loving God. And at the cross of Jesus, we find no wimp and we find a heart beating with tender mercies. Only at the cross of Jesus. Second, To uphold God's name is to uphold both his mercy and his justice. Christians who talk about God without reference to one or the other are lopping God's head off. It's as though they're, they're beheading the Lord. It's as though they're chopping up God. To uphold God's name, his whole name, is to uphold both his mercy and his justice. And this goes both ways. There are those who just want to talk about grace, grace, grace. Mercy, mercy, mercy. And have no real attentiveness to God's justice, his punishment, his discipline, his hatred of sin, his call to repent. Those things just aren't there. It's just mercy, grace, and mercy, grace, and mercy, grace. And that is to, that is to fail to represent the God of glory. That is to fail to uphold the name of God. That's a God of your own invention. It's a truncated God. And at the same time, there are those who only wish to talk of God's wrath and God's judgment with no real focus on the good news of the gospel. No focus on God's grace and mercy. I remember being in college and I would always go and listen to the the preachers, the street preachers, and some of them were, were wonderful They'd preach on campus and people would come up and listen. Many would mock, but some would listen. But one of the things that struck me is that, unfortunately, more often than not, there was just a whole lot of blasting, just a whole lot of blasting the sins of college life, a whole lot of blasting the sins of the culture. But there was no Christ. There was no mercy. There was no grace. There was no upholding of God's name. It was just angry, blasting. Both of those things are false. Mercy without justice. Justice without mercy. That's not the God of Israel. That's not the God of glory. That's not the God who appeared to Moses on Sinai. That is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is warning against presuming on God's grace and failing to regard his justice. Because it is more often the case that we do that. So I want to go to the former. The street preacher example is there, but it is more often the case that we presume on God's grace and fail to regard his justice. Romans chapter 2 verse 4, 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So let me, let me say something to you this morning. Maybe you're here and you're like, well, God hasn't, I mean, I've been doing this thing. I've been doing this thing for a long time. Life's going okay, you know. God, God's, God's still been good to me. I still feel his presence and, you know, whatever, whatever, however you want to say it. Well, guess what? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to say to you, stop, stop. Because I am so good, because I am so gracious, because I am so kind, stop and worship me and thank me and serve me, not your idol. Don't presume on my grace. Don't presume on my grace. Romans 6, 1 to 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, unthinkable, God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Are you presuming on God's grace this morning, just charging ahead in your sin? See God's name. Consider who he really is, not who you have reinvented him to be. Third, God's name is not something merely to be understood. It is to be practiced and reflected. Luke chapter 6, verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. God is merciful, so what do we do who belong to God? We are merciful. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. God forgives us. What do we do? We forgive others. Proverbs nineteen eleven. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense, just as it is the glory of the Lord for him to be slow to anger. It is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. How many of us husbands need to hear that with our wives? They speak to us maybe a little disrespectfully. They do something that we don't really like. And maybe they, they fuss at us in front of the kids or something like that. And, oh, I'm offended. I am offended. It is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. It is the glory of a man to have a long nose, to be long of nose, like his father, like Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. So we see here the holy name. Now we come briefly to the humble reaction. I say briefly because it is pretty clear and straightforward. Look at verses 8 to 9. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So how does Moses react to this glorious revelation of God's name declared by God himself in Moses' presence? How does he react to it? Well, I think this can be quickly summarized with two phrases, bowing down and leaning in. Bowing down and leaning in. First, bowing down, and this is exactly what the text says. Nothing creative there. This is exactly what the text says Moses does. And he doesn't just do it, he does it quickly. And the text literally reads, he hastened and he bowed down. And that's pulled together as he quickly bowed down. This is an immediate response to the glory of the Lord. Immediate. There's no reflection needed here. No analysis needed. No assessment of the situation. This is an immediate response to encountering the living God. Here we see a speedy transition from glory to dirt. From glory to to dirt. Moses goes from looking at the back of the Lord to looking at the ground. This is humble worship. It is a recognition of who God is and who we are in comparison. And notice here, as God is lifted up, we are brought low. This is worship. Self eclipsed by the glory of the Lord. Let me say this to you. If you want to know whether you're truly worshiping or not, that's what happens. Let me say it again. 
If you want to know whether or not you're truly, truly worshiping your daily life when you come to church, is this happening? Self is eclipsed by the glory of the Lord. Hands up, hands down. Hands halfway somewhere. Voice loud, voice a little lower. Eyes wide open, eyes closed. Eyes turned up, eyes turned down. Maybe eyes looking around. It doesn't matter. What matters is that self is eclipsed by the glory of God. That's when worship happens. And that's what we see here. We see the humility here of Moses as God's glory totally eclipses Moses' own glory. He's in the dirt. His face is dirty. And you see... This humble attitude in a couple of other ways. He calls God Adonai or Lord. Now, notice here when we read these verses, you may have noticed that the L-O-R-D are not capitalized. And that's because when the L-O-R-D are capitalized, it's because Yahweh is in view, being translated from the Hebrew. When they're not capitalized, it's the word for Lord or Master or Sir. And here he calls him Adonai. And what it means is it denotes submission to the Lord of the covenant. In other words, God has so blown Moses away with what Yahweh means that now Moses can only say, Master, Master. To even say the name at this point too would be so petty for him. God has said it and he has said it. And for Moses to say it, how weak. So he says, Lord, he says, master, master of the covenant, master to whom I submit, glorious king. He admits his sin and he groups himself with the people. Please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Notice that Moses doesn't think he's, he's immune from God's judgment on sin. Moses knows he's a sinner. Now he didn't make the golden calf He didn't bow down to the golden calf. He destroyed it, but he's still a sinner. And so he groups himself with the people. So we see a bowing down, but second, as we close this morning, we also see a leaning in. And this is important as we live out the Christian life. Moses leans into God's name. Listen to this. He leans into God's name. He leans into his gracious nature. He says, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. He leans into God's compassion, his grace, his steadfast love, his faithfulness and forgiveness. Go with us, forgive us, don't cast us off as your covenant people. All of this is based on who God is. So here's the big question this morning as we close. Do we bow down and lean in? Do we bow down and lean in? Maybe you lean in all the time, but there's not a lot of bowing. Not a lot of bowing. Or you're bowing but not resting and trusting in God's grace and his mercy, calling out to him for forgiveness, waking up every day and not carrying around a load of guilt from yesterday, but confessing your sins and trusting that he forgives and cleanses and turning away from that and moving forward. Bowing down and leaning in. And in fact, our love for the Lord grows as we experience his mercy and grace, as we lean into his character in moments of weakness and sin. I came across this psalm this week, and I just love it because as we think about the one thing that we're called to do is to love God, right? Uh, the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. And I read this and just thought this would be an appropriate place to end as we think about what happens when we lean in and how that grows our love for the Lord. Psalm 116, one to five, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, therefore, 
I will call on him as long as I live. Isn't that the heartbeat of every Christian? The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. So lean in. Lean in to this God and don't replace him in his name with one of your own making. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for how you reveal your glory and how your glory shows your grace, your mercy to sinners, and how it also shows the seriousness of sin and how all of this is demonstrated at the cross as you put your own son on the cross in the greatest act of mercy and grace imaginable And as you poured out your wrath on your son in the greatest display of justice that we could ever have. Father, this is the seriousness of both your mercy and your justice. We praise you, God, that you are unique among all the gods of the world. That there is no God who holds these things together. There is no God worthy of our worship. There is no God that is not a figment of our own imagination, or an idol of our own making. But you are the Lord, and you made the heavens. We praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen.